And one of the things I'm really excited about, I can't tell too many details because it's not completely official yet, but we are working with a donor on possibly moving another historical building out to the museum. And that's more of a long range plan. It's going to take a lot of years and a lot of funding to get there. But I think it's worth it to not only preserve the building in perpetuity, but also to make that building accessible to the public and so they can dive into that history as well. Well, that's great. That's great news. Thank you. Really good. You just heard Ms. Amber Colbert, the administrator of the Clark County Museum in Henderson, Nevada, announce a plan to move another building to Heritage Street at the museum sometime in the future. So if you want to make a difference for years to come, now's the best time to become a member of the Clark County Museum. Just go to www.clarkcountymuseumguild.com and become a member or donate today. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. We have a great program for you today. In this episode, we have the pleasure of welcoming Ms. Amber Colbert, the museum's administrator who oversees multiple museums in Nevada. Among them are the Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum at the Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas and the Searchlight Museum located in the Searchlight Community Center. However, today's spotlight will be on the Clark County Museum located in Henderson, Nevada. The Clark County Museum spans an impressive 30 acres. Its captivating features include a modern exhibit hall with a fascinating timeline display. Covering the history of Southern Nevada from prehistoric times to the present day. Additionally, the museum boasts a remarkable collection of meticulously restored historic buildings offering a glimpse into the daily life of past decades in Las Vegas, Boulder City, and Henderson. Throughout the episode, we'll delve into the museum's remarkable mission of preserving and safeguarding the rich history of Southern Nevada. Amber and her team's dedication to education and advocacy will undoubtedly inspire you to join their cause and support the preservation of these invaluable historic buildings and the tales they hold. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions 
associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. This is our September 11th episode. On September 11, 2001, 22 years ago, the unthinkable happened as terrorists attacked the United States. Nearly 3,000 died as a result. It's right that we keep this date in our thoughts annually for the people that died and for their families who are forever impacted by the loss they experienced that day. We remember the innocent lives lost on September 11, 2001. We honor the victims and their families. We remember the first responders who risked their lives to save others. We keep them in our prayers. We remember the bravery of those who fought back against the terrorists. We remember the unity and strength of our country that emerged from the darkness of the tragedy. September 11th taught us the power of compassion, the strength of unity, and the unwavering spirit of humanity in the face of adversity. Let each September 11th serve as a reminder that we must stand together regardless of our differences as Americans. As we remember the victims, let us recommit ourselves to promoting tolerance, empathy, and the pursuit of a safer, compassionate world. May their memories live on in our hearts, inspiring us to create a future filled with hope and solidarity. We must never forget what happened on that day, and we must continue to work toward a better future for all. If you'd like to contribute or learn more, please go to the National September 11th Memorial and Museum website at www.911memorial.org. Okay, now our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com. But you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. In the upcoming episode of Preservation Oaks, we have the privilege of sitting down with the multi-talented Mr. Moises Garza. He's a genealogist, author, speaker, educator, and podcaster with a profound expertise in Mexican genealogy. Moises has penned over 70 insightful books encompassing diverse aspects of Mexican genealogy, making them readily accessible to the public. Mark your calendars for his forthcoming genealogy conference on September 21st through the 22nd, 2023, promising to be an enriching experience for all Mexican-American genealogy enthusiasts. Beyond his written works and conference engagements, Moises extends his knowledge and assistance to individuals seeking guidance with their Mexican genealogy inquiries on his website, mexicangenealogy.com and through the active Facebook group, Mexican Genealogy. For further updates and to explore more of Moises Garza's expertise, visit his website at moisesgarza.com. Join us on the next episode as we delve into the fascinating world of Mexican genealogy with this remarkable and dedicated expert. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical July events for this episode, 
September 1st, happy birthday to Tarzan of the Apes creator Edgar Rice Burroughs, who lived from 1875 to 1950. He was born in Chicago. Before becoming a novelist, he was a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. On September 3rd, 1833, the New York Sun newspaper first appeared, marking the beginning of the Penny Press, inexpensive newspapers sold on sidewalks by newspaper boys. The paper focused on human interest stories and sensationalism, and by 1836 was the largest seller in America with a circulation of 30,000. September 3, 1838, anti-slavery leader Frederick Douglass began his escape from slavery by boarding a train in Baltimore dressed as a sailor. He rode to Wilmington, Delaware, where he caught a steamboat to the free city of Philadelphia, then took a train to New York City, where he came under the protection of the Underground Railway Network. September 5, 1997, Mother Teresa died in Calcutta at the age of 87 after a life of good work spent aiding the sick and poor in India through her Missionaries of Charity order. There's this poem attributed to Mother Teresa that I love and I suspect many of you have heard. It's entitled, Do It Anyway. Here goes. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and other people anyway. On September 9, 1776, the United States came into existence as the Continental Congress changed the name of the new American nation from the United Colonies. Just think, we could be the United Colonies of America. September 16, 1620, the Mayflower ship departed from England. This is September. It departed from England bound for America with 102 passengers and a small crew. The ship weathered dangerous Atlantic storms and reached Provincetown, Massachusetts on November 21st. The pilgrims disembarked at Plymouth on December 26th. Can you imagine? This is the prime hurricane season in the Atlantic Ocean, and once they landed, they needed enough supplies to carry them through the winter to spring planting in mid-May. They had to build wooden shelters for the 102 people to live in during the winter and to cut enough wood to keep everybody warm. I started wondering how many passengers actually survived that first winter, and I looked it up, and it was of the 102 passengers who arrived in Massachusetts on the Mayflower in September 1620, only around 50 of them survived the first winter. The harsh conditions, lack of proper shelter, exposure, malnutrition, and diseases took a heavy toll on the pilgrims during that first winter. It was a challenging time, and the survivors faced great adversity in their efforts to establish a new settlement in Plymouth. 
On September 20th, 1873, the New York Stock Exchange was forced to close for the first time in its history. As a result of a banking crisis during the financial panic of 1873. On September 25th, 1690, the first American newspaper was published, a single edition of Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic, appeared in Boston, Massachusetts. However, British authorities considered the newspaper offensive and ordered its immediate suppression. Thank you so much to HistoryPlace.com for our September historic events. Take a little tea, 20s tea. Hot and good. I love 20s tea. Let me introduce you to our guest, Amber Colbert. While Amber Colbert's fervor for history didn't always burn brightly, it flourished during her stints working summers in the captivating ghost town of Bodie State Historic Park. After earning her Bachelor of Science degree in wildlife management from Humboldt State University, Amber's infatuation with history and natural resources found renewed expression when she became a Nevada State Park Ranger at Valley of Fire. Seeking to deepen her involvement in the realm of museums, Amber transitioned from Valley of Fire State Park to assume the role of manager within the Science and Nature Department at Discovery Children's Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. However, the allure of history and the great outdoors proved irresistible. Departing from her position at Discovery Children's Museum, Amber embarked on a journey that led her to Clark County Museum, initially as a cultural specialist. Over the course of five years, her dedication and expertise propelled her ascent to the position of museum's administrator within Clark County by October 2021. As the museum's administrator, Amber assumes responsibility for overseeing multiple institutions, Clark County Museum in Henderson, Nevada, Searchlight Historical Museum in Searchlight, Nevada, and Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum situated within Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas, Nevada. During her moments of leisure, Amber finds joy in the company of her husband and their two-year-old son. Together, they partake in outdoor adventures such as camping and hiking, while also indulging in visits to various museums and historical sites. Welcome to the program, Amber. I'm excited to have you as our guest today because the Clark County Museum is a unique part of the area and well worth people seeing it and supporting. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Hey, what's your favorite part of the city of Henderson? So, of course, my favorite part of the city of Henderson would be the Clark County Museum. I'm a little partial, as it is the museum I manage and home where we work every day and get to explore history. But if I'd have to say other parts of Henderson itself, I would have to say Water Street area. Gives you a really good feel of like a small town community, even though you're in this big metropolitan area that is the Las Vegas Valley. Also, I would say another place would be Sloan Canyon, which is just to the south of Henderson. It's the southwest part of Henderson. And it's a conservation area where you can find a plethora of rock art dating back to the Paiutes and further in the area. Oh, that's very cool. I know when I went through the city on Google Maps, the street view, it seemed like a very modern city and, and very well planned. I really like that. It, it is. It definitely is very well planned. And even though it's one of the youngest cities in Southern Nevada. Very cool. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any particular events or festivals in Henderson that you'd recommend people attend? Uh, yeah, one of them is actually at the museum itself. It's our large event of the year. It's called Heritage Holidays. It usually happens the second Friday and Saturday of December. And it's kind of like a small Christmas tree lighting without the Christmas tree. We have Santa Claus greeting all the kids. We have uh, cookies and hot chocolate, a craft tent. And then everyone gets to explore the museum. And we have a good selection of historical homes that have been moved there that get decorated in the areas they're from. So if the house is representing the 1920s, you're going to have a Christmas tree in there that doesn't have lights on it, has candles on it. If you're going to go into the 1940s, it's going to be World War II and it's going to be a little bit restricted. There are other many events throughout the whole valley, of course. We have in Henderson specifically, Henderson Hot Rod Days is one of my favorites because I always think of, when I think of history, I think of classic cars for some reason. <laughs> that's, that's when they have that one in October. We also have the Age of Chivalry, Las Vegas Renaissance Festival in October, which is a great event to go to. And then our local Henderson Historical Society does a lot of Henderson Speaks events, which are lectures and panels and discussion throughout. And then can't forget Boulder City. And there's the Boulder City Danbury in July, which is one of the long running events there in that community. Holy cow, you got a lot going on there all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your heritage holidays, normally, mm -hmm. I think I read there's an admission to the museum. Is is it open to the public at that point without admission? Yeah, it is one of our free events. So it's completely free to the public. We get typically anywhere from 800 to 1200 people per night wow. um, out at the museum. But it really just does feel like this small town community, even though we're in this large metro metropolitan area with over you know 2.2 million people. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know what the population was. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. That is pretty cool. Now, the city has a rich history, and you've, you've mentioned the petroglyphs. Are there any other historic sites or landmarks in Henderson you find interesting? Yeah. So, of course, um, there's the beginning of Henderson, which they refer to that area as the town site area, which sparked from the building of basic magnesium ink plant. Um, so that was a plant to refine magnesium for the use in World War II, and they needed housing. There wasn't housing in that area. There was only housing in Boulder City and Las Vegas, nothing in between. So they actually built a thousand townsite homes. We have one of which at the museum that's been restored to what it would have looked like in the 1940s. Across the street from there, you had the development shortly thereafter of Victory Village. And then about a year after the townsite house was developed, they built Carver Park, which no longer exists either. There's one building remaining, and that's the Elks Lodge now. And Carver Park was the neighborhood they built for the black workers that were coming to work at Basic Magnesium. And we're actually going to be doing a discussion about that since we're hitting close to the October will be the 80th anniversary of the opening of Carver Park. Oh, very cool. And mm -hmm. so you're having a, a discussion with a lecturer or with an expert in that? Yeah, so we actually have a panel which includes Clay T. White, who's an expert from UNLV. She's the director of the oral history department there. Cool. And we're going to have Rick Watson, who's the pre former president of the Henderson Historical Society. And he's also a longtime resident. He used to live in Carver Park. Um, and we're also going to have J.J. Balk, who used to live in Carver Park. So we're going to have some memories of Carver Park, along with the history of Carver Park. Now, do you record those and make them available to members? Yeah, we've actually partnered with the Henderson Historical Society. So they're actually going to record that and make it available on their YouTube channel and then provide the museum with a copy so we can document that and keep that in our records forever. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. 
And you said that the, the Historical Society is doing oral histories as well? Yeah, so the Henderson Historical Society does lectures on a regular basis. They call it the Henderson Speak series. Yeah. And they typically do those at Nevada State College in their lecture hall. And they pick up subjects that are relevant to the time and period that we're going through now. They get guest lectures. Sometimes they have a panel. Sometimes they have a lecture. They're really interesting topics that they cover and they document it. But on top of that, we have our local university, UNLV, has an excellent oral history department run by Clay T. White. And she and her employees are basically documenting our history through that oral dictation of what people experienced. Yeah, I love those things. That's amazing. <laughs> now, how yes. did Clark County start? What's the history of it? So Clark County um, was actually originally when Nevada became a state in 1864, Clark County was not part of the state. Clark County was part of a territory in Arizona. And it wasn't as popular as the northern part of Nevada, but there were mines here and we did become kind of a travel spot, like a pit stop. And so shortly after we became a state in 1864, by 1867, we were included in that Nevada state boundary, but we weren't yet a county. We were part of Lincoln County, which is to the north of us. And if you go up a little further north to Pioch and Panaca, their mines were a lot more successful at that time. So the population down here was a little less. Now that shortly changed. You had Searchlight, El Dorado Canyon, you had Las Vegas starting to build. And by 1908, the county, a county division committee was formed to kind of promote Las Vegas and the southern part of Nevada, dividing from Lincoln County. And on July 1st, 1909, Clark County actually split from the rest of Lincoln County. Mm. And Las Vegas actually won the seat. If you could believe it or not, Searchlight was a big top runner to become the seat of Clark County. And if you can imagine having to go down to Searchlight instead of going to Las Vegas to do all your business, oh, yeah. um, it seems a little backward. But at that point, Searchlight was a gold mining town and it was prosperous. It was larger than Las Vegas. So it was close to winning, but people knew kind of Las Vegas was going to be something big because it was a big travel hub for the railroad. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I never thought of this before. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas, that's sort of a, a Spanish name. What does that mean in Spanish? Do you know? So Las Vegas means the meadows, and it's not what you would think of Las Vegas today. But early travelers, when they were exploring and trying to find that fastest route from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles to go to the ocean to trade, as they traveled through, they went some, through some pretty harsh desert oh, and yeah. not a lot of places with water. Well, they came into our valley, which did have natural aquifers. And they saw this glorious meadow with water and, and, and resources that they could use on their travels. Oh. So they called it the meadows, which is what Las Vegas means in Spanish. That makes perfect sense. Wow. You are a wellspring of information. It's just great. <laughs> and I try to be. It's really interesting to me. And it's always been a passion. And I think it, it makes you connect to a place. And make, I'm not from... Las Vegas or Southern Nevada and learning its history makes me feel like there's a little part of it that is mine and that, you know, I can see where people came from and their, their goals of being here. And I'm part of that now. Well, it had to be um, such back in the day, you know, back in the in mm -hmm. 19th century, let's say it had to mm -hmm. be a really hard life mining and all that in the heat. Yeah. And especially in Las Vegas, Las Vegas didn't really have that mind, but they were trying to make it like the ultimate pit stop. So they were trying to grow Things. They had cattle ranches. It was kind of this 
up in the air community didn't have really organization. And so it was, it was kind of the wild west as you imagine it. If you go back to when Las Vegas, the town of Las Vegas started in 1905 with that land auction from the railroad. So they brought people, the railroad brought people here from California. They gave them free tickets if they would, you know, bid on the land out here and that they subdivided, which we know now is downtown Las Vegas. And so people were coming out here from California on, it was in May. So it wasn't cool temperatures by any stretch of imagination. It was quite warm. And they're in this canvas tent trying to bid for this land that they don't know how prosperous it's going to be. I'm a farmer and I'm bidding on something. How do I know I can grow stuff? Yeah. And honestly, at that point, they weren't even looking to grow because they, the ranch, they actually subdivided what was the Stewart Ranch as part of what the land they got. Mm. They just knew this was going to be a railroad town and <laughs> okay. let's take a gamble on it, essentially. And the town did prosper for a little bit, but it did have its down, ups and downs as well. Later on, even like four years later, they saw a decrease in the population and the railroad didn't want to see that. So they actually pumped some money back into the community and created some middle management jobs, which wow. brought some middle managers and that middle class out here and boosted the economy and the population of Las Vegas again. So it took a lot of work to get to where it is today. Okay. Um, and some of that even goes back to early, early history. That's amazing. <laughs> so what's the history of Henderson, Nevada? So Henderson was a lot later in history. Henderson was born out of World War II. So after Pearl Harbor hit and the United States got involved in World War II, there was a need for magnesium. And for magnesium, they needed to refine that. And they looked for places to put a factory. Well, the Hoover Dam had just you know, been created in the 1930s, was producing all this electricity. So there's a good electric source nearby. So they figure, let's build it in this area between Boulder City and Las Vegas. So Basic Magnesium, Inc., is a federally sponsored program. They come in, they build their factory, and now the employees need somewhere to live. So they build a thousand temporary homes. They were meant to be completely taken apart and moved after World War II. Families started moving in as they found jobs at, at the magnesium plant. Victory Village popped up eventually, and then Carver Park. Um, and then you have this large population in this area that really wasn't quite named yet plant, of course, closed down after shortly after World War II and reopened a couple different times. But they also used that area to house people for Nellis Air Force Base. And come mm-hmm. 1950s, the city incorporated. It was a small community. But now you look at it and there's 22 master planned communities. It's the second largest city in Nevada. And it's always growing. It's kind of got that you can be in a small town feel, but be right next to the big city of Las Vegas. Yeah, that is very attractive. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's really still cool. known for a lot of industrial use as well. We have a lot of factories and warehouses in, in Henderson themselves. So there's a lot of jobs for people to work in the city of, of Henderson rather than commuting to Las Vegas as well. What did they need magnesium for in World War II? So the magnesium was used in a lot of the incinerary devices they were dropping from the planes in World oh. War II. So it was one of our, you know, the first big wars where they were dropping a lot, a lot of incinerary devices in the uh, the magnesium was needed for that. Wow. Yeah, we did a lot of that. <laughs> What's the uh, history of the Clark County Museum? So I think the Clark County, this is part of the one thing I love about our museum is our museum's history. It goes back all the way to 1911 to a woman named Anna Newfer. She arrived here in the valley and she was a really eccentric 
woman who loved collecting things. She came here with her traveling partner at that time, and they opened a small business called the Las Vegas People's Store, and they sold dry goods. It was very prosperous. And shortly thereafter, they got married and they opened another business. They opened a, a limestone quarry. And then eventually he became the Las Vegas undertaker. And Anna, being his wife, would travel with him. She'd collect things, but she wanted to be an undertaker as well. So eventually she decided to go to California for a year and go to embalming school. She graduated and she came back to Las Vegas and she found her husband living with another married woman in the oh. upstairs apartment over their undertaking business. Oh, goodness. <laughs> she was not going to have that. So she did divorce him, but that she didn't let that stop her. Within a year, she had enough money. Now that she's a licensed embalmer, she had enough money to start her own funeral home. The building she wanted was an old hotel that had caught on fire and closed down. And the owner didn't want to, to sell it to her. So she actually took a train to California to meet him personally to convince him to sell her his building. And she did. And she came back with a palm tree and she planted that palm tree in front of that building. And she opened her funeral home a year after she divorced her husband. And eventually she outcompeted him and became the, the leading funeral home in the valley. In fact, there's seven graveyards now named after her business, Palm Funeral Home. And she was very successful. But being a, a mortician, she had to travel a lot. When she traveled, she collected everything she, she thought was unique to the area or she just liked. She collected gemstones and minerals and Native American art and all sorts of things. And she started storing it and she wanted it to become a museum. Unfortunately, she didn't see that come to fruition. She did pass away in early 1960, 1962 in a car accident. But her daughter inherited her collection and knew her mom's wishes. So she spent four years trying to find a museum to take her mom's collection on. Um, at that time, Southern Nevada really didn't have a museum. So she eventually approached the Henderson uh, Chamber of Commerce and said, we don't have a museum down here. We need one. And I have this huge collection. And 1968, on April 20th, the, the Southern Nevada Museum opened up in an old gymnasium of the townsite school. And about a year later, the city gave them a property on South Boulder Highway. Now, it came with a caveat. That property had to have a building within five years. Well, 1974 rolls around. This museum's run by a small nonprofit. They're not making a lot of money. They don't have a building on those grounds. Mm. But someone had seen that the Pacific uh, Union Pacific Railroad was advertising that the old depot down in Boulder City was available and they wanted it to be gone. So they contacted them and said, will you donate that building to the museum? And the Union Pacific said, yeah, as long as you pay to move it. <laughs> so the museum scraped all their funds together and moved that building to our current location, which is at 1830 South Boulder Highway in Henderson. And that became one of the first exhibit halls on the grounds. And they ran both exhibits for a while, but they didn't have enough money to pay their staff anymore. So they were all volunteer until the county stepped in and said, we've been you know, supplementing you guys. Why don't we just take over your operations? That way we know the museum's going to be secure. And they took money then from the uh, taxpayer you know, revenue and put it towards running a museum. And we've been that ever since. Oh, fantastic. Wow. What a history. What mm-hmm. a history. Oh, man, it was pretty rocky in, in the beginning. Um, yeah, and that's what a lot of people don't understand about museums, even nonprofit museums, it, especially nonprofit museums. The funding for them is very difficult because 
most of what people see is what they put out as exhibits, but there's a whole bunch that happens behind the scenes that people don't see that costs a lot of money. Yeah. And you usually can't cover your costs just by emissions. You have to have it set up where you're either getting, you know, a large amount of donations from the public in general, or you're backed by some kind of government entity that can help fund um, from, you know, tax revenue. Yeah, good point. Now, I read that the museum is a Blue Star Museum. What is that? So Blue Star Museums is a partnership between the National Endowment for Arts and Blue Star Families. So the Blue Star Families are families that are military personnel, active military personnel, um, including the National Guard and Reserve. And what we do every year is from about mid-May till Labor Day, we provide free entrance into the museum for the active service member and their families. Now, we've gone a step further, and all year long, any active military or retired military can get into the museum for free. Their families will just have to pay our low admission price of a dollar per senior or youth or $2 per adult. Oh, fantastic. Wow, that's, that's a good deal. That's really mm-hmm. good. Shows a lot of respect for those folks. That's great. Yeah. And it's a good way to get them involved and, you know, show them what they're protecting in the community. And especially with Nellis Air Force Base being so close to us, it's important for us to show our support to that community. Yeah, good point. I'd like to provide the listeners with the contact information for the Clark County Museum. You can find them on the web at ClarkCountyNV, as in Nevada, dot gov backslash museum. You can find them on Facebook at Clark County Museum. You can phone them at 702-455-7955. You can email them at ccparks at clarkcountynv.gov. And if you want to visit, which I hope you do, go to 1830 South Boulder Highway, Henderson, Nevada, 89002. I was reading that you're open seven days a week. Yeah, so we're open seven days a week, with the exception of Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day. So our our staff can go home and celebrate those uh, holidays with their families. We try to make it accessible. This is our um, local history, and we want to make sure everyone can get to it when they can. Yeah, that admission cost is great. $2 for adults, $1 for seniors and children, and free for Blue Star veterans and the active military. Mm-hmm. That's great. Could you kindly share with the audience the diversity of your membership and the museum's mission and objectives? Yeah, so the museum serves a wide range of types of visitors. We get visitors that are either long-term residents or short-term residents. Being that we're a really transient community here in Las Vegas, it's really hard to find someone that actually was born and raised in Vegas. Our residents don't always grow up knowing the history. So we do get a lot of people that either lived here for five years, some of them even 20 years of, oh, I never knew this was here, kind of the the unexplored backyard we are. So we do get a lot of residents, but we also, being so close to Las Vegas, we get a lot of domestic and foreign tourists who are looking for a way to get off the Las Vegas Strip and really immerse themselves into the community. We also have a lot of visitors from local schools, colleges, and universities. One of my favorite visitors I see is multi-generational visitors. So we get a lot of grandparents with their grandkids, and it's a way they can actually connect about their own community or connect about their own past. And both, it makes just an authentic visit for them because it takes what the grandparents grew up with and makes it a real thing. Kids can actually step into a house that may have looked like their grandparents' parents' house 
and see what it would have looked like and you know how they how they made popcorn or how they watch TV or <laughs> the simple everyday things that they don't get to see on a normal basis. Yeah, fantastic. So the the mission of the museum is we serve our residents by collecting and preserving the history and natural history of Southern Nevada. And then we present that history through exhibits and programs. So we do that through our exhibits on campus, as well as we do some outreach sometimes. Uh, we do education programs on campus, as well as outreach um, education programs. And then the preserving of it is a lot of what we do as well. What's the yeah. relationship of the Clark County Museum Guild and the museum? I was a little confused by that. So being that we are run by Clark County Department of Parks and Rec, we are sometimes limited on the kind of fundraising we can do and the funds that are available to us. So in 1975, the Clark County Museum Guild was officially established to help run and promote the museum. So what the guild does is it's its own separate organization, and its main goal is to support the museum by underwriting some of our programs, some of our restoration effort, grounds improvement, collection purchases, exhibits, and just our everyday kind of operations that we can't have funded by the county. It gives us an opportunity to kind of, you know, cut through some of that red tape that is government um, and fund some much needed projects that aren't completely, you know, have to happen, but for the growth of the museum and for the preservation of our history are really nice to happen. So an example of that is their last fundraising project was we have the Grand Canyon Airway Ticket Office and Bradley House was donated to the museum, I believe in 2002. And they started doing a fundraiser almost immediately to try to raise the funds to restore that to what it originally looked like. And the estimate for that project was about $250,000. Mm. Um, and the county didn't have the funds to do that. So what the guild did is they fundraised for about 10 years and they raised that $250,000 and then they commissioned the restoration of it. They were able to go get the bids and oversee the, con the construction on the site of our museum. And they restored it and opened in February of 2020, $50,000 under budget as well. So they did a really great job. And now it's restored. Visitors can actually walk in and they can learn about the Grand Canyon Airway ticket office that was down in Boulder City, where people would buy their tickets to tour the Grand Canyon via the airplane. And eventually that office actually served as the tickets for TWA because TWA couldn't fly into Las Vegas airport because that was owned by their competitor. So they had to fly into Boulder City. Now, eventually that ticket office closed down for a bigger one, and it was moved into Boulder City to become a residence. And it was the residence of the first Black family that was allowed to live in Boulder City, the Bradley family, Henry and O.C. Bradley. So the other half of that building is representing Black history prior to World War II. Oh, very cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. very cool. Now, if I want to become a member of the museum, I need to go to the guild to buy a membership? Yeah, um, because we are a county organization, we used to have memberships and they didn't quite work out that well. So we've let the guild take that on. And as becoming a guild member, you get kind of some benefits. And one of those benefits is entrance into the museum um, for the full year that you're a member of the guild. Um, all you have to do is show your guild membership and they let you right in. So you can come to the museum as often as you'd like. Plus, you get insider information. You get a monthly newsletter from the Guild, which has information that we don't te technically put out all the time to everyone else. 
and they get invited to special events. There's a, a monthly luncheon as well that they get to have the guest speakers and they get to kind of get sneak previews to some of our exhibits sometimes or some of our programs. So it's it's benefit that the county can't give, but the guild can give to their members. Well, that's very cool. I want to tell listeners that the Clark County Museum Guild has their own website and you can get to them by going to www.clarkcountymuseumguild.com. And there you can donate using credit card or whatever you want to do to the museum. There's a link to the museum. You can show your support. They have a Facebook page and you can also buy a membership to the museum. That all sound right? Yes. And hopefully we'll be getting a newsletter out for if you just want a general information about the museum as well. They'll hopefully be doing like a monthly news subscription that you can, you don't want to become a member and you just want a little bit of information of what's happening at the museum. That's another good resource. Okay. And just from their Facebook page, what I Ooh. saw was look great. They look like a great group. You know, like you said, Amber, they have guests in for speakers and that kind of thing. Amber, what's coming up on the horizon for the museum? Where are you headed next? So we actually have quite a bit of coming up. One of the things I had mentioned prior to was we have a discussion panel coming up in October. And this is something not new to the museum, but we're kind of rehashing them. As as you guys have heard about me, I became an administrator about two years ago over the museum. We're finally full staff and I have a good cultural specialist who's experienced in setting up these panel discussions. And it gives an opportunity for the public to kind of come and meet the experts, come and meet the people that lived that history. So the panel is on Carver Park and BMI, which is Basic Magnesium Inc., World War II and beyond. So kind of the development all the way till it actually closed down. And so that's what we have going on on October 19th. After that, we have our, our new exhibit opening up, which is going to focus on the 75 years of Clark County aviation history. In December, we are marking the 75th anniversary of the county purchasing what was McCarran International Airport at that point. Now it's known as Harry Reid International Airport. And the county really taking a stance in local aviation history. So we've got a lot of aviation uh, artifacts because we also run the Aviation Museum. And we're going to be able to do a display on our um, Henderson exhibit. We also have coming up We'll have a discussion linked to that exhibit. And then we have our Heritage Holidays event. I've got some things planning as well, maybe a movie night at the museum outside. We have a nice amphitheater. I'm hoping to do a movie that's tied to Las Vegas history. And one of the things I'm really excited about, I can't tell too many details because it's not completely official yet, but we are working with a donor on possibly moving another historical building out to the museum. And that's more of a long range plan. It's going to take a lot of years and a lot of funding to get there. But I think it's worth it to not only preserve the building in perpetuity, but also to make that building accessible to the public and so they can dive into that history as well. Well, that's great. That's great news. Thank you. Really good. Now, can you tell us a funny or interesting story from your museum's history? So I think one of the funniest stories is kind of, and I, I alluded to it earlier with the history of the museum, is kind of how we got to the museum grounds we are on today. So the fact that the museum was running on such low fumes and no funding, and they were offered this piece of land in 1969, but they had to put a building on it. That was the city of Henderson's one restriction. You have five years to get a building on it. Well, they let those five years go by with no building on it. So everything was kind of rushed at the end. They need a building. And 
they were really fortunate in the fact that the Union Pacific was going to donate the railroad depot to them, the Boulder City Railroad Depot, and they moved it. But unfortunately, it cost them all their funding. Okay. <laughs> so the director at the time, Roy Purcell, who's a very well-known artist and actually has an art gallery in Arizona, he ended up having to quit because he couldn't work for free. So for a long, for about two years, the museum was run by volunteers. Well, one of those volunteers ended up being the, the curator of exhibits, Donna Jolliffe, and she stayed for about 35 years. She actually started at the museum as a high school volunteer when it was in that old school gymnasium. And she is now the president of the Clark County Museum Guild. So it's kind of once people come in, they're stuck, <laughs> with the exception of that first director. God bless her, you know it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Amber, what types of exhibits are on display at the Clark County Museum? So the Clark County Museum consists of an exhibit hall, which has a timeline. The exhibit goes from prehistoric, so when Nevada was an inland ocean, all the way to our current industry, which are gaming and mining and weddings, of course. And then we have a special exhibit there that is our rotating gallery. So it gives us an opportunity to highlight some of the items from our collection that don't always make it out. Right now, that is focusing on surveying in, in the Las Vegas Valley. Specifically, it focuses on J.T. McWilliams, one of the really early surveyors. We have a lot of his equipment and original maps and surveys that he did. And then if you go outside, as I said, we have 30 acres. So we have 16 historical buildings, including a railroad depot. We have a replica print shop. We actually have a wedding chapel that was located on Las Vegas Boulevard to kind of interpret that history with Las Vegas and the long history of weddings. In fact, 5% of weddings all happen in the world happen in Las Vegas. So yeah. we're a huge wedding industry. And that chapel claims that it has the world record for the most weddings in 24 hours, which was one wedding every three and a half minutes. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> we also have poems that interpret the different decades um, going from the 19-teens all the way up to the 1960s. So we have a home from Henderson from the Townsite House from the 1940s representing that World War II era. We have the Beckley House, which is the only house on the grounds that represents the only family that ever lived in that home a very important part of the building of our early community. The Beckleys donated the house to us because it was one of the last pioneer homes in downtown Las Vegas. Now there's a parking garage where that home once stood. It was located on 4th and 1st Street, so right downtown Las Vegas. And then we have homes that were a little bit further out. We have one that started in Goldfield, Nevada, moved to Las Vegas and became an antique shop down off of Reno Street. And uh, she sold her antiques there in the 1960s. So you can walk in and look what the antique shop would have looked like from the 1960s. So there's a little bit of everything in all those homes. And then on top of that, we have a little resurrected ghost town, which have some buildings that were from real ghost towns, moved here in, into Las Vegas for um, some casinos. And then eventually when those casinos closed, it moved out to Henderson at our location. Wow, that's very cool. Do you still do weddings at all at the chapel? So we don't do weddings at the chapel. Unfortunately, it's not permitted to. And the way we have it set up on exhibit, we have mannequins that are doing wedding ceremonies. So we can't really, they're not easy to move <laughs> situate. <laughs> but we do allow weddings on the museum grounds. So we do offer grounds rentals. 
and there is a grounds rental right next to the chapel and we allow bride and groom to take pictures outside the chapel and inside as long as they don't disturb the normal visitors to the museum because number one our number one use is we want people to come and learn about the history yeah. uh, weddings would be a secondary use yeah i know you have a nice gazebo there Mm-hmm. That's where the weddings typically take place. They get married right there. They can see the chapel off off to the side of them, and then they can go over and take some pictures in front of the chapel. Oh, very cool. Now, I know you're close mm-hmm. to Las Vegas, and you have a lot of different activities and things going on in Henderson and Las Vegas, and probably other towns in southern Nevada there. Do you have any mm-hmm. collections exhibited anywhere else? So currently, we have a satellite site all the way up in Overton, Nevada at the Moapa Community Center, and it's interpreting their their site there, which is a big agriculture area. still has a really rich history and a long history, probably longer than Las Vegas itself. So we have that in a small community center, and we are hoping to expand some of our exhibits, being that we are part of Clark County Parks and Recs. They have a lot of recreation centers that don't necessarily have the historical information of those unique communities in them. One of my main goals when I became administrator is to kind of bring the history to those community centers and give them a way to connect to their specific history. That would be cool. What is a mm-hmm. Moapa? Yeah, Moapa is to the northeast of Moapa as a residence. Actually, there's a band of Paiutes named Moapa as well. Okay. And it's northeast of Las Vegas by like 57 miles, right? Kind of almost, it's not on the border. It's on the border of Arizona, but not how you can travel to Arizona. <laughs> It's the north end of Lake Mead, where Lake Mead used to be, at least. <laughs> Fantastic. I really like the properties on Heritage Street. That is very cool to take a stroll down there. I did that on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is very cool. I, there was even one YouTube video where somebody went inside some of the properties and mm-hmm. uh, showed some of the artifacts. That was very cool. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is, is if you've been there once, you can come again because I have a full team of staff members and volunteers that go in and they change those decorations in those house based on the season. So if it's summer, you're not going to see winter clothing on those mannequins. You're not going to see winter decorations up. You're going to see Fourth of July decorations and lemonade in the cups and summer meal versus a winter meal. And so they're constantly changing out what those houses look like inside to interpret what the season would have looked like. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. Mm -hmm. Makes Mm -hmm. it fresh all the time. All right, Amber, it looks like it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. All right, listeners, stay tuned and we'll be back shortly after these important messages. Step into the captivating history of Clark County, Nevada, with a visit to the Clark County Museum, nestled in the heart of Henderson, right in your own hometown. Whether you're with family, friends, or exploring solo, the museum offers a fascinating journey into why Clark County is truly special. Discover the wonders of Clark County Museum online at clarkcountynv.gov museum, or better yet, come down and experience it firsthand at their convenient location. 1830 South Boulder Highway, Henderson, Nevada. The doors are open daily from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and admission is a mere $2 for adults and $1 for seniors and children, making it accessible to all. 
For group tours and inquiries about special rates, simply call 702-455-7955 to make reservations. Don't forget, by becoming a museum member, you become a cherished part of the museum's community. Memberships are available at www.clarkcountymuseumguild.com. They are always open and ready to welcome you with open arms. It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. Welcome back to Book Shorts. We have a great segment today. There's a genealogist slash author slash speaker slash educator by the name of Moises Garza, who has written a book that I think many family historians with Mexican ancestors can benefit from. It's entitled Mexican Genealogy Research Online, a guide to help you discover your Mexican ancestry. The second edition provides family historians with a solid foundation for finding Mexican ancestors online. Mr. Garza's passion for genealogy started in the cotton fields of West Texas. As a migrant worker, he worked in the fields next to his father, who had a sharp memory and told countless stories about his ancestors. Moises has been a family historian since 1998. Since then, he's helped countless others in their own quest to find their ancestors. Today, he continues with this passion by publishing and creating resources to help others with their Mexican research. There are a lot of families with Mexican heritage, and this book was written to save them time and money. It contains information about using free internet resources and takes the beginner family historian from the basics of getting started with genealogy to more advanced topics of research. Okay. Welcome to Book Shorts, Moises. Thank you, Sean. It's an honor and pleasure to be here with you today. Moises, I'd like to say thank you for writing this book to help researchers understand how to make progress researching Mexican ancestors. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, noticing our, or my tiny little book to help uh, Mexican Americans or third generation, second, third generation Mexican Americans help find their ancestors. Absolutely. I think it's just invaluable for people to know where the sources are, where they can find records on their ancestors, and the best way to do it. So your book is really good. What motivated you to write the book? My main motivation, uh, there's a, a one or two excellent books out there and that you guys could actually find on Amazon that are great, but they were written prior to the year 2000. So they don't really have references to anything online that's updated. And to be honest with you, my second edition book actually needs a third edition book to bring up to date those links. But ah. the good thing is that those links are smart links. So whenever the website goes down, I'll look for something similar and replace it on the back end. So the book, it's always evergreen. It won't be out of date that you're going to find dead links. And if anybody does find one in my book, just let me know, email me, and I'll find the equivalent or fix the link so it could continue working as it was designed to. But my main motivation was to bring those resources to the, the internet era 
where you could find your ancestors online with basically without leaving your home. You could do your research just from your house. Fantastic. Yeah, I like that about the book. It's very practical, very down to earth. It's written for people who are not wealthy, who don't have money to pay genealogists all over the place. They can do it themselves, and that's a really good thing. Can you give us an overview of your book, Mexican Genealogy Research Online, a guide to help you discover your Mexican ancestry? Sure, Sean. I start the book with common misconceptions, you know, and those are my common misconceptions that I had growing up. And I know a lot of Mexican-Americans are going to find that they have those same misconceptions. And just to tell you, one of, one of those misconceptions is that we think that there's nothing out there for our ancestors. For example, I grew up in, in a north, northeastern Mexico in the state of Tamaulipas in a very rural area where there was practically no people around or a big town within 20 miles of where the ranch was located. So one assumes like there's no records for our ancestors or maybe our ancestors were poor. There's nothing to document them. But, you know, I talk about some of those misconceptions. I also talk about doing research with Google, which is the world's biggest search engine. I talk about starting with a good and solid foundation of the citing your sources, citing everything that you find. And basically, other tips and tricks, and it contains about, I want to say, 25 to 30 articles that will help you start your Mexican genealogy research the right way and also build a solid foundation to build on top of that as you go on learning more. Fantastic. How's the second edition different from the first? Well, the main difference is that the first is no longer available. And the first edition had 20 articles. And the second ed edition has those 20 articles updated and also includes about 10 more articles. And since you were talking earlier that, you know, it's great if you don't have a budget or to pay somebody. And like I always tell people, if you have more money than time, we'll pay somebody to do your genealogy. Now, if you have more time than money, there's nothing more rewarding than learning to do it yourself and find those records and those ancestors by yourself. But, you know, if your budget is tight at this moment due to the economy or for whatever reason, you could just go to my website, mexicangenealogy.com and click on the tab or the link that says resources on the top. And you're going to be able to find an email series there that's titled uh, Meet Your Ancestors. It's 20 articles in 20 days, and that's actually the first edition. But remember, signing up for it, it's free, but you have to do the work. You have to read those articles and make sure you understand them. Not just because you signed up and you're going to get 20 articles. That does not mean that you're going to learn how to do or get started with Mexican genealogy research. Right. Yep. That's good advice. How does your book help the family historian make progress in finding their ancestors? Well, it helps you make progress by, you know, getting rid of those misconceptions and actually testing out the misconceptions that you have. Also shows you how to do online research, shows you about family search, which is, uh, as you may know, the biggest repository of genealogical information. For example, all the Catholic church records for Mexico, or not all of them, but a good 90, over 90% of them are online there. 
Summon index, summer not. And that's where you have to actually go out to the back end and browse the documents. And the book will show you how to do that. Also, they have the, the civil registration records online. Same thing, not all of them are indexed, but you will get with the book, you will get a good idea how to go to the back end and uh, narrow it down and search those documents manually. So it will help you make progress because you will read about things that you may have not known. Or even if you're an experienced researcher, you're going to be able to see how I do things. So you may pick up one or two gold nuggets for your own research. Where's the best place for someone to get a copy of the book? The best place? It's Amazon. It's on Amazon.com. And the reason for that is because they do the printing and they do the shipping. So basically, I don't have to do anything, just promote it or send an occasional email letting people know that the book is actually available. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Moises, you mentioned that you have a genealogy group. What was it called? Yes, I have a genealogy group. It's uh, called Las Villas del Norte. And in English, it's called the Villages of the North. And it's named after the 1749 settlements that Jose Descandón did on northeastern Mexico, which is now the current state of Tamaulipas, Mexico. Yeah. And I would love to invite everybody to check it out. It's uh, lasvillasdelnorte.com, or you could just go to my website, moisesgarza.com, and you will find the link to it there. But, uh, you know, we have a recorded every single presenter that has presented for us. We have a database of over a million people and that's very well documented for Northeastern Mexico and South Texas. And we have, uh, you know, journals and newsletters. And unlike other genealogy societies, we we don't just give you the journal or the newsletters from the day that you sign up. If you sign up, you could go back eight years and download all that content as eBooks for your own genealogical database. Oh, very cool. Now, you're on Facebook with this group, too, as well. Yes, we're on Facebook for Las Vías del Norte, but that's more for members. What I highly recommend everybody is just go to Facebook, search for Mexican Genealogy, and you will find our group. It's the biggest one that's there. It's about 41,000 to 42,000 members. Wow. And it's a great companion for the book. If you buy the book and you have any questions, you could find me there, or you could just ask the community, and the community is very welcoming. And it's taken us years to create a culture of caring people. We want to create this culture of sharing and helping each other out, you know, and also about a safe place where you could share your discoveries and tell the community, you know, because we, we may tell, for example, I tell my wife about a discovery I made and she just like rolls her eyes like, okay, once, a, you know, again. So our family may not be that understanding, but everybody in that group, like, they'll love to hear about what you have to say about genealogy. Fantastic. Moises, are all the presentations done in Spanish? No, all the presentations are in English. We probably only have about two of them that are from two Mexican researchers that are actually in Spanish. Every, everything on Las Vías del Norte, it's in English. It's uh-huh. for Mexican-Americans. You know, anybody that has roots in Mexico or roots in the United States. And most of the presentations are genealogy and methodology focused. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a guest on Book Shorts. I'd like to thank you for your time and for your book. 
I really think this book written from your hands-on perspective is invaluable to family researchers with Mexican ancestors. You come back anytime, okay? Thank you, Sean. Really appreciate it. And uh, once again, thank you for having me over. Get your very own copy of the book, Mexican Genealogy Research Online, a guide to help you discover your Mexican ancestry by author Mr. Moises Garza at Amazon.com. Oh, and as Moises mentioned, he also has a website you can visit, which is MexicanGenealogy.com. Moises is available as a speaker to groups. If you'd care to engage him as a speaker, please visit MoisesGarza.com. Moises Garza has authored several other books available covering various topics about Mexican genealogy. He has a genealogy conference coming up in September 2023. Find more information about those at MoisesGarza.com. I'm so glad we found Moises and his wonderful work helping people to find their Mexican-American ancestry. And I'm happy to bring this information to our listeners so they can make progress on their Mexican-American heritage. If you have questions or comments, please send them to preservationoaks at gmail.com. I thank you in advance for doing that. Much appreciated. Okay, we'll see you all on the next book short. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We're here today with Ms. Amber Colbert from the Clark County Museum, located in Henderson, Nevada. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Amber. Yeah, thank you for having me again. I had a note to myself about you have some kind of exhibit or something about remembering the 1st of October 2017. Yeah, so this collection actually holds probably one of the biggest parts of my heart with the museum because I was there when it came in. On October 1st, 2017, 58 concert goers lost their lives to gun violence. They were at a concert called Route 91 Country Concert. And over, I believe, over 800 people had injuries due to this event as well. And afterwards, our community really came together. They were out in lines giving blood out to the point where there was a line for days to give blood. And they also came out and showed their support by putting up impromptu memorials. Well, the largest of those memorials was at the Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign, which is a property that is owned and ran by Clark County. Eventually, some of those signs and things became a safety concern because it is along the roadway and they had to start moving them. That's where the museum stepped in and offered to take those items. And so for a good, I think it was 12 weeks, every week we got a trailer and a truck delivered of items that people either handmade, they purchased, they made unique, and they dropped them off at the museum. We had to go through them to make sure that they were items we could take and preserve because flowers aren't easy to preserve and food items aren't good for our storage. And (laughs) we had to comb through them and kind of consolidate. Then it took uh, at least a full two years to actually catalog all those items. And we ended up with over 22,000 items in that collection. Each one has some kind of personal mark on it. 
This includes the 58 memorial crosses left by Greg Zanis. Greg Zanis was someone who traveled the country to gun violence incidents or mass shooting incidents and left crosses to remember the victims. We don't have all 58 crosses because we have given to the families that the family wants to take the cross. We have allowed them to take the cross. It belongs to them, not the museum. But we do have quite a few of them in our storage, as well as the other 22,000 items. And every year when we hit that anniversary, it really makes it show what the museum can do. The museum's here to preserve that forever. Those families don't have to worry about what's going to happen to all that stuff. It will be there forever. If their grandkids want to come and see, you know, what their great aunt was like or how she was remembered, they can come and we've got it all organized and we can pull it out and actually show the people what our community came together and did. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, that's that's got to be kind of emotional. It would be for me. Yeah, it's, it's it's we always joke. It's one of our like favorite collections because of what it does for the community. But it's also one of the hardest collections yeah. to to work with as well, just because of the emotional factor involved. Yeah. And have you put all of that on display yet? So the first year, right after the first year anniversary, we put as much as we could fit out in our temporary exhibit. We do not plan to put it all out. We have a small exhibit that we feature items in, and we're going to be rotating items out. It is too large and too sensitive of a collection to to put out. The crosses were out at the museum grounds for a full month after they arrived so that people could still come and visit them. And then at the year anniversary, we put them in the government center where they had a sunrise memorial service for the victims. But since then, we have not put them out. We do have two extra crosses that were made by Greg Zanis. One says Vegas Strong and one is blank. And we use those to interpret the history just because these crosses are signed by people, by family members, by members of the community. And we don't want to degrade those any more than than necessary. Yeah. And they were constructed basically overnight. So they aren't always the most stable <laughs> construction to move. So they do stay, but they are accessible to anybody that wants to make an appointment to see them. That is great work. Great work. Mm-hmm. Now, I ask this question of every guest. The question is, if your museum were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? I hate these kind of questions because nothing's nothing's of monetary value. Everything is of historical value. And it's hard to rate what is more historical than something else. Honestly, it would be the staff and volunteers. Those are the things that are irreplaceable. These are the people that put their hard work into the museum every day. Now, if I had to pick physical items and I had magic and actually could move really large items, I probably would save the houses. That is the unique part of our museum. It's part we'll never get back. And I think it's the part people connect with the most. You walk into someone's house, you it makes it real. It makes it authentic. You can see what it was like in the 1920s. You can see how the Beckley family lived. You know, what was their bathroom like? Did they have running water? Did they have electricity? All those things are in there without even having to do signage or explanations. You get the feel of that family in that time. So I would have to say the houses would probably be the one thing I would take. Followed by sense. some of the Native American artifacts we have too, because they're just irreplaceable. And oh, yeah, everything's cool. irreplaceable. That's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of why I ask it, because you know it is a problem. And, yes. Uh, now, pictures. I wouldn't grab pictures. We've digitized a lot of those, so we have them. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Right. Amber, what type of fundraising activities or opportunities does your museum offer? 
So the biggest way people can kind of support the museum is number one, come out and see the museum. Our visitation numbers always speak really loud and clear to the county and that the museum's important and it needs funding. Other than that, our other funding opportunities are to the Clark County Museum Guild. And there's a couple ways people can help support the Clark County Museum Guild. One of them is they do memorial bricks in our grove, which is behind the gazebo at the end of Heritage Street. They sell them for $100. You can buy a brick, put your name on it, put whatever you want to put it within the limitations of the numbers. That would be available on their website. They do have the brick ordering form. We do accept donations. The county accepts donations, and there is a fund specifically for Clark County Museum that you can donate to, but you can also donate just to the guild themselves. They do do fundraiser events. Historically, in the past, they've done a nice poker night at one of the casinos, and it's a tournament they do with a buy-in, and it's been fun with lots of gifts and raffles. Other than that, right now, they're doing a lot of internal fundraising. So if you become a member, you can be invited to their Christmas party where they have an auction of baked items uh, with Mark Hall Patton being the auctioneer. And then they also do a lot of fundraiser events on the museum grounds. Coming up in October, they're going to be doing a yard sale. So these are not items from the museum. These are items from the guild members' personal homes that they are bringing out and they'll be selling and all the proceeds will go to the Clark County Museum Guild. Fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that group. Just go mm-hmm. to their Facebook page or go to their <laughs> website, either one. There's a lot going on. All right. Thank you for that, Amber. Mm-hmm. What kind of outreach and education does the museum undertake within the community? So the education we do, we had really, really strong numbers prior to COVID of field trips. Being that Nevada State History is part of the curriculum for all fourth grade students in Nevada, the Clark County Museum made an excellent field trip opportunity. We have resumed educational tours and they are starting to increase with the local school district being able to get bus drivers and take buses out there. School kids come out and we offer them a two hour tour of the museum grounds. So they get to explore all the parts of the grounds, go inside the houses, And that is mostly a volunteer-ran program. So our volunteers offer their time to take these kids around. They challenge them to go into the houses and look for what did these people do and what kind of industries were, were popular during that time period and kind of dive into what was our community really like that you're now a part of. And they get to go through the exhibit hall and get to see how the timeline works and how does that timeline look for Southern Nevada. And then they get to go through a ghost town that is a resurrected ghost town, but they get that feeling of what it was like in those early westward expansions and how open the land was and how hard those miners worked. And they get to see some of the tools and machinery that miners used. As far as going out of the museum grounds itself, we have reached out to classrooms. We've done some virtual field trips as well, where we laid discussions with them over Zoom or Google Meet. And then we've also had the opportunity to go to several summer camps in our recreation centers where we've actually took our education collection, put things on the tables for kids to touch and explore and figure out what is this? One of my favorite items in that was, you know, swim trunk, wool swim trunks. (laughs) Kids have no idea what that is and actually getting them to where they can put their hands on it and feel the texture of it, feel how heavy it was. Another example is a rotary phone. We take a rotary phone. How would you dial it? What numbers would you dial? How many digits were in a phone number at that time? Some things like that where they're really starting to look at, compare what it is like today and what it was like then with hands-on artifacts. And I think that's those programs have been really successful. Oh, yeah. I would love that when, if I was a kid. <laughs> I would love that. 
<laughs> My other favorite one is we had to actually find it and we had to use Reddit to figure out what it was ourselves. And it was a tie iron from the 1930s. Looked like a sword and the kids thought it was a sword. <laughs> <laughs> but once we showed them what it was used for and how it was used, the application totally made sense if you had a tie with it. <laughs> I've not, I don't think I've ever seen one of those. It was the oddest thing. And sometimes we get donations. We don't quite get explanations with them. So it's just this household item. We don't know what it is. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and so Reddit came to the rescue. And the online community really helped us figure out what that was. Wow, that's cool. You must mm-hmm. have some great people, great volunteers. I absolutely do. I have lucked out in my career and been able to work with some amazing people. They make all the difference in the world. It does. How do you keep the community informed about the progress of what the museum is doing and achieving its mission? So that's probably one of the hardest things for us. Being that we're on the outskirts of the valley, people don't always know that we exist. So one of the ways the museum was able to do that was our former administrator was on the show Pawn Stars. That gave us a lot of free publicity and does continue to bring a lot of people out to the museum. In addition to that, that also led to us developing our own Facebook page separate from the county's Facebook page. And it gives us an opportunity to just hit museum audience with what is going on at the museum, what we have plans for and connect to them, including, you know, during COVID when the museum was closed, we were able to do some Facebook lives and actually connect to our audience and tell them what we're working on and what we're hoping to plan or what we have done and what the museum has to offer and kind of showcase some of those things. The Clark County Museum Guild also has a Facebook page and an Instagram. So we are working with them to get our information out there. And then being part of the county, uh, generally work with our our public information office, uh, making sure that we get press releases out so they can go to local news and media and also the county's social media websites as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Use that Mm -hmm. technology. That's good. Yes. (laughs) What kinds of great historical artifacts has the museum received as donations from the public? We receive all sorts of donations. In fact, and I'd say in the last 10 years, most of our artifacts have been donations from the public, even the houses themselves. We've never paid for any of the houses that are on our museum grounds. They were donated by the owners. We had to fundraise to get them moved to the museum grounds, but they were originally donated by the owners and usually supplemented and helped to move by the owners of those buildings. Some of the other things we have, um, we get a lot of household goods. So, you know, blenders, pianos, sewing machines, those kind of things that people don't think of saving and donating. Uh, I think at one point we counted, we had like 57 clothes irons. Oh, wow. (laughs) We had a... We had a volunteer that had to catalog them, so we did give them the Iron Award because they were able to go through all 57 and catalog and document them for us. But we also have some really important key things to local Nevada history, not just the everyday use. One of my favorite items we have is the gun from the Kyle Ranch family. And the Kyle family was here at the same time as the Stewart. Archibald Stewart uh, got his property from O.D. Glass uh, for a bet that he was owed. He moved on into that land with his wife, Helen Stewart, which is what most people know her, know her, don't know Archibald. Archibald went to the Kyle Ranch about a year after he bought his ranch or got his ranch and was shot dead. And there was always skepticism that the Kyle Ranch owners, actually, Kyle brothers were the ones that shot Archibald, but there was never any proof. Well, we have 
the Kyle brothers gun. We don't know if it's the one that shot Archibald, but <laughs> it quite possibly could be. But that gun itself lends to telling this story of this feud between these two families that were really early in our history and really kind of developed what we became. If Archibald had not been shot, Helen Stewart probably wouldn't have taken over the ranch. And Helen Stewart's the one that negotiated the sale of some of her land to the railroad, which uh-huh. then came in and made Las Vegas. <laughs> so it's those kind of pieces of history that if that wouldn't have happened, what would have happened that I kind of like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed something pretty cool on your website. There was a, a link for search the collections on the website. Does the museum have most of the artifacts in the collection digitized? No. So we do not have most of it. I think I was looking at it today. I think we have something in the thirty to 40,000 range digitized. A lot of those 22, over 22,000 of, of those are the one October collection. So the one October collection has completely been digitized because of when we received it, we were able to process that collection as a whole, take photographs of every 3D object, scan every paper object um, and document it and make it accessible online. And that came online last year for the five year anniversary. Other items, we have photographs. So we were lucky enough to get some good collections of photographs. And we have volunteers that work on a regular basis just scanning photographs and making them so that we can include them in our our online database. So slowly we're working to keep adding. Right now we're working mostly on photographs because they're the easiest. We just have to scan them or the physical items. We have to take pictures and we have to take multiple angles of every item. (laughs) We are doing that for the newer items coming in, but there is a backlog of items that have not been cataloged. Every museum has that backlog just because you can't always keep up with what comes in. And you're kind of always trying to backtrack for what people did before you came in as well. So we have over a million artifacts in our collection and wait, I don't wait, think wait, we wait, will wait. ever have a million. A yeah, million? that's our best guesstimate. Yeah, Whoa. that's our best estimate. It's over a million artifacts. So we have quite a few storage areas. When we first got our collection, it started with Ann Robert Park's collection, and she had an extreme amount of items stored in a storage building off of 21st and Fremont Street that she rented and hopes to become a a museum. And some of those items still haven't been cataloged. And we're going back and trying to find them and we go through them and kind of fun what pops up of what was in her collection. And and then every, every day we're getting, you know, new stuff or new pictures. So it it is an extreme amount. I don't think it'll ever all be online, but we're trying to make a dent in it as fast as we can. And it really depends on volunteers. Yeah, that's a lot of work. And I hope you get the volunteers. I also saw a video of you showing a new archival warehouse, which I think was 4,000 square feet, and it was really beautiful. It was brand new, and that a whole lot of artifacts, and I believe it was climate controlled. What's the current state of that? So that opened June of last year. So just over a year ago, the construction was finally complete on that. That building came about For eight years, the museum had a need for additional storage. Unlike most places, museums can't go clean our closet out. We have to keep every item. If we do decide we want to get rid of an item, it has to meet certain criteria. It has to not meet our mission, so not be based from Southern Nevada, or it has to be damaged beyond repair. And then we have to go through a process of the museum staff, the curator of exhibits, the administrator, and the registrar all have to agree that that item does not belong in our collection. 
and then we propose it to the Clark County Board of Commissioners, and they actually have to vote to deaccession that as well to get rid of wow. it. So we're not getting rid of all that much, but we keep getting more. So storage is always something that we're going to need more and more and more of. And at the time, we were storing things in our our offices. We were storing things in the houses and any little crevice that visitors couldn't see. And sometimes that's not always the appropriate storage because it makes it hard to access for visitors. So after 1 October happened and we got this influx of over 22,000 items, it really became apparent to the county that we our need had pretty much, it was there and it needs to be funded. So they funded that project and built us a 4,000 square foot storage. And to take you know advantage of all the space, we were able to get moving shelves. So that 4,000 square feet only has two aisle ways. That storage building has you know, drawers that are specific for like Native American baskets. You can put those in a box, but then if you're stacking box upon box upon box, it may start to damage that artifact. Right. But if you put it in a hard-sided drawer, nothing is going to damage that basket. That goes for hats as well. It makes really good storage for hats. We have a lot of, in our aviation museum, we have a lot of model planes. Then those are very fragile and very hard to store because you've got the wings and the tails hanging out. and oh, yeah. um, They're kind of odd shaped. Well, these drawers have made it really easy for us. And then if we're looking for an item, we know exactly what shelf to go to. We pull it out, we pull the drawer out, and there's exactly what we're looking for. Because really... What's the point of having it if you can't find it? Yeah, I bet your curator is very happy. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, that, that storage unit has, is our kind of pride and joy. And anytime someone comes to the museum, that's the one thing we really want to show off. Because it's kind of where we've gotten to start from scratch on our organization and our cataloging. And we know where everything is in that building. And we know it's cared for and stored properly. Not that it isn't across the museum grounds. It's just this gave us the opportunity to start from scratch and do it right the first time. Fantastic. I know we talked about volunteers that were digitizing photographs and doing other work, but what kinds of volunteer opportunities does the museum have for members and the public of the area? So we have lots of different opportunities for volunteers. We have our large events like Heritage Holidays always takes a vast number of volunteers. And their basic job is just to kind of be eyes and ears for the museum and greet visitors. For other events, we need them to kind of help direct, you know, visitors and kind of, again, be our eyes and ears. Can't be everywhere on our 30 acres. So we need some people to help us with that. But then also for our education program, our education program needs volunteers. As I said earlier, for our education tours with school kids, they go around the museum for two hours and we try to break them up into groups of 30 or less students. So every tour that we have one school come typically takes about three to four volunteers to help us tour those kids around. In addition to that, we have our exhibits. Our exhibits always need maintenance and auditing to make sure we're accurate with our information. So we have a couple volunteers that go out and make sure the houses are clean and organized and presentable. And then some of them that are helping us plan future exhibits, finding you know typos or misinformation and past exhibits or looking through the um, collection to see what might be best for our upcoming exhibit. And then we have our collection volunteers, which some of them are scanning and digitizing photographs, but we also have volunteers working on the backlog of our items. So these are the people kind of behind the scenes and probably our lar one of our largest volunteer groups of people. And it could be just going through photographs and trying to figure out what is this photograph of and who is it and what year is it from? 
or it could be looking at physical items and writing in a description and measurements and taking photographs of it. So we've got a lot of volunteers. We did get a lot of volunteers for the One October collection. A lot of them have returned and are helping us now with our new building on moving some of those items and making sure they're all documented. That's great. Do you work with any local colleges to try to get history majors or those kind of folks to get engaged? Yeah, we have had in the past a few interns from UNLV History's History Department. We're looking forward to working with Southern Nevada University coming up on some of their projects. And we put the word out that we're willing to give, you know, can't give paid internships all the time, but it's a good place for them to get experience and kind of dip their foot into the community and kind of put some work forward. So we've worked with them. We work with the major departments at UNLV on a lot of projects, and we're starting to build those bridges a little bit further to hopefully get some of those students out and helping us out and us helping them. It always amazes me how much work there is for good volunteers involved mm-hmm. in just, you know, mm-hmm. you got 16 properties there, plus a, a yeah. you know, a large museum building mm-hmm. and all of these yeah. things, storage buildings and so on. There's just a ton of work for everybody to do. Yep, we never turn a volunteer down. <laughs> just amazing. I want to give the audience the contact information once again. You can reach the Clark County Museum at clarkcountynv.gov backslash museum. You can reach the Clark County Museum Guild, and that's where you get your memberships, and you can donate at clarkcountymuseumguild.com. They're on Facebook at Clark County Museum, and I believe the Guild is also on Facebook. You can phone them at 702-455-7955. You can email them at ccparks at clarkcountynv.gov. And I hope you visit them at 1830 South Boulder Highway, Henderson, Nevada, 89002. Amber, can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the museum that you want the people of your area to know about and support? I think the biggest need for the museum is just to get people back out. After COVID-19 hit and we closed for three months, our visitation has been suffering since then. So to get people out and actually visiting the museum is probably the best thing people can do to support us. Other things to do is, you know, is to actually, you know, donate to the Clark County Museum Guild. They're always collecting funds to help us and supplement some of those things that the county cannot pay for. You can also just donate to the museum, either with monetary donations or with artifacts. So if you have anything that's related to Southern Nevada history, they can always outreach to us and expand our collection and make sure we're representing the entire community. Fantastic. Thank you for that. How does the museum interface with other in Southern Nevada there in in Clark County? How do you interface with other state, county and regional societies? We are part of Nevada Museum Association, so we do work with the other museums in our region and the state. good example of working with all the museums was that one October collection. Shortly after 1st of October 2017, the museums all kind of gathered together and kind of defined what each museum was going to do. So UNLV Oral History Department was going to do the oral history of that event. Clark County Museum was going to do the impromptu memorials. The Nevada State Museum was going to try to get some of the items from the actual concert and some of the items that were there at the scene or participants that were there at the scene, some of the items that they had taken or had at the concert itself and some of the aftermath as well as supporters 
not impromptu memorials, but we had lots of marches, lots of blood, blood drives and those kind of things. So kind of defining which ones we're going to do. On top of that, we partner with some organizations. One of the partnerships we've recently done is with Nevada Preservation Foundation. Every year they hold an annual home and history event uh, where they provide tours of all the historical um, architectural areas of the city. And we held an event called How Did Heritage Street Happen? And we offered visitors, uh, ticket holders to come in and experience some of the foods from the 1920s and 30s. And then we had people stationed at the houses from the 19 and 20s telling a little bit of the backstory about how those houses came to the Clark County Museum. Why did they come to the Clark County Museum? What were some of the unique stories of how we got them and how we preserved them? And that was an excellent partnership. Coming up for the Carver Park discussion, we're going to be having, we'll work with UNLV Director of Oral History, Clay T. White, when we're working with the Henderson Historical Society. And then being a county organization ourselves, we've worked with a lot of our own county departments. So, you know, we found, at one point, we found human remains in our collection. We had to send those to the coroner's office to be tested to make sure we're following all the state laws and regulations. And we've worked, that's one of the more unique departments we've worked with, but we've worked with some other departments as well in providing things. In fact, we're we're probably going to be holding an event for all county employees coming up possibly in October. And then, of course, we work with our local recreation centers with their summer camps coming out to the museum and the museum going to the summer camps as well. So quite a bit going on working with partners. Amber, it's time for us to take a short break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, stay tuned and we'll be right back. Welcome to a world of wonder and exploration at the Clark County Museum. Set on a sprawling 30-acre site, the museum invites you to embark on a fascinating journey through the history of Southern Nevada, from prehistoric to modern times. The modern exhibit hall features a captivating timeline exhibit that unfolds the rich tapestry of the region's past. While their collection of restored historic buildings brings to life the daily experiences from different decades in Las Vegas, Boulder City, and Henderson. Step into the newest exhibit, Laying Out Las Vegas, a survey of surveying Southern Nevada. Immerse yourself in the beauty of Heritage Street, where 16 meticulously restored historic buildings await your exploration. Traverse time as you engage with the sights, sounds, and stories of our ancestors. Visit the Clark County Museum now, conveniently located at 1830 South Boulder Highway, Henderson, Nevada. To learn more, browse the website at clarkcountynv.gov museum. They're open daily from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and general admission is just $2 for adults and $1 for seniors and children. For group tours, please call 702-455-7955 to make reservations and inquire about special rates. Become a part of the museum's cherished community by joining as a member. 
Memberships are available at www.clarkcountymuseumguild.com. You're listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. If you enjoy the show, then please tell all your friends, family, neighbors, pals, business associates, colleagues, and maybe a couple of enemies about the show. Stay tuned for more episodes at www.preservationoaks.podbean.com. We thank you so much for spreading the love. Sometimes the most commonplace artifact triggers the most heartfelt memories. The museums, cultural and heritage institutions. Historical and genealogical societies within our communities have responsibility for preserving these artifacts so they can be used to educate each new generation about their own past. They are the gatherers and caretakers of the stories of our history, culture and heritage. Sharing the lessons of history fosters an understanding of the fundamental knowledge of why things work the way they do. Once armed with a knowledge of their place in history, people have a much higher success rate as they build the future. Our values and ideals are rightly influenced by those who came before us. On each episode of Preservation Oaks, our guests share key information about these core organizations and history. You'll learn about the great work they do, what their needs are, their goals, and why you can feel really competent about the future by volunteering and supporting them. Join us wherever you get your podcasts, and then follow, comment, like, and listen. I'd like to talk about volunteering, especially as a way to help your growing family. As we all know, there are a million things to accomplish and only 24 hours a day to do so. Many people have no idea how to find time to commit to their local museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society. But it's a valuable investment in the community and your family on many levels and something that you'll need to make work to realize the benefits. Why does it matter to you personally to get involved in your community? Well, if you're a business leader, it's important to keep your finger on the pulse of the local business community. By doing so, you not only do your part to support local causes, but also stay aware of opportunities to grow your company. While there are a variety of ways to accomplish this, including social media, newspapers, television, social circles and networking, there is no better way than to build relationships by engaging yourself in these valuable organizations within the community. However, if you're raising a family and seeking to train your kids in the life lesson, quote, to do well for your community by doing good, unquote, then it's imperative to immerse yourself and your family in helping the community and having fun while doing so. Maybe you've wondered, how can I volunteer in my community, but still have a lot of fun? If so, being a volunteer at a museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society could be for you. You'll find great opportunities to work with children in order to pass on knowledge and history. Not only do you get to teach the next generation of kids some valuable life skills and information, but you also get to enjoy the activities while teaching them. Volunteers typically help guide visitors, answer questions, answer phones, perform research, help file, work with children, and a huge number of other things that keep the society running smoothly. You also get to attend the events and learn more about your community so that you can pass this on to your family and friends. Your family will get a sense of belonging, a sense of place. For those who say they don't have time to volunteer, time is secondary. 
people with a family and other obligations, can generally give just a few hours a week. You don't have to volunteer for hours and hours of time. You can start by micro-volunteering, with a shift between one to two hours. These societies host a variety of fun activities to bring members and non-members together. These organizations are non-profit organizations, meaning that they have very few staff members on the payroll and rely on volunteers to assist with the rest of their activities. There are always things to do, and if you strike up a conversation with any of them, they'll be happy to help you find something that you will love doing and that helps your family and community. It's an exalted feeling to volunteer your talent, plus the people you spend your time with and the experiences you gain are invaluable. There are literally thousands of people from all walks of life who volunteer their time, energy and resources to museums, cultural, historical and genealogical societies all across the country. If you enjoy books and quiet, the research library is the perfect place for you to volunteer. You will get to organize books and perform research tasks to help others document their lineage. You can be involved in digitizing records and photographs. You can enter records into a database or help the curator. These societies can offer many different activities for you to engage and help by doing something you love. Museums, cultural, historical, and genealogical societies generally work closely with community members, schools, and businesses. They often host events and fundraisers to bring information to the public and improve the success of the area. You can help improve your community by giving back to these organizations that make your community a better place to live. One of the most beneficial and perhaps underrated perks of starting your volunteer journey is the example it sets for those around you. Within your circle, volunteering is phenomenal for the wellness of your community, as you're demonstrating that helping is a core value. From your family members and friends to anyone else in your circle, your efforts to make the time and commit to your community won't go unnoticed. They will set a positive tone in your circle and instill a sense of direction throughout their lives because they will be at the heart of the community. Please consider volunteering with your family today. You'll be glad you did. Captain, our computer is picking up a strange signal. Here, sir, you better take a look at it. You're listening to MicroStream Radio in Preservation Oaks. The world's only program communicating the value of museums, historical and genealogical societies across the USA. The most interesting show on the planet. This is Sonia Costin of the rural Woodbury County Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is James Burns, neurodiverse freelance curator, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. <clears throat> Edwards, excellent job you did getting those tiny tea leaves for Tetley tea bags, but what's this ridiculous item on your expense account? Lotus blossoms from Miss Sita Damapella, three rupees. We don't send you out there for fun, you know. But, Mr. Dimes, as a Tetley tea taster, you do insist on only the tiniest tea leaves. Right, Edwards, because tiny tea leaves give Tetley tea a richer, heartier flavor. Yes. I know they're hard to find, but that's no excuse to be fast and loose with the firm's money. But, Mr. Dimes... No excuses, Edwards. But Mr. Dimes, Cedar did talk her father into selling us 50 chests of tiny tea leaves. She did? Yes. Hmm. Wonderful girl, Cedar. Those tiny little tea leaves in Tetley Tea.
I was made of tough rawhide by a master. He put a lot of special tooling on my horn, pommel, skirts, cantle, fenders, jockeys, strings, and cinch. My conchos were made of pure silver. I was presented to the first prize winner. That's where I met Matt. From then on, Matt used me on holidays, special trail rides, for parades, and other events. He would oil me, and wipe me down every time he used me. He was so proud of me, and I was happy to be a part of his tack. Years went by, and Matt used me less and less. Finally, I was used at his funeral with his favorite horse Annie. We looked great together. Then, I sat in the tack room for years. Finally, the ranch was sold, and I was discovered under a blanket of dust by the new owner. She marveled at me, and I can remember that day so well. She oiled me again and donated me to the local historical society museum. They replaced the brittle latigos and strings, and even paid to retool them to match. I looked good again. Now, I'm on display for the community to see every day, and they marvel at the way I look and how I'm made. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. 9 out of 10 listeners agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We're here today with Ms. Amber Colbert from the Clark County Museum located in Henderson, Nevada. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Amber. Hi, thank you. Amber, why is the museum important to the community and what makes your organization different or unique from others? People think of Las Vegas and the Clark County area. They don't think about the heritage and the culture. Our culture here is building up. But for the Clark County Museum, we've been here. We're actually one of the oldest museums in the Las Vegas Valley, starting in 1968. And our collection started from a resident that moved here in 1911. So our collection goes way back. And it's actually, the, you know, the everyday items, I think, is what's unique. It shows you how our community progressed from a small railroad town to a big metropolitan area that is constantly adapting. And we're trying to show those adaptations. What makes us a little bit different is that you get to do this in multiple ways. You get to immerse yourself with your all five of your senses into the historical homes. You also get to see it put out in a timeline. So no matter how you learn about history, what the best way is, we've got a little bit of everything for everybody. Yes, you do. There's no doubt about that. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. What's the benefit of joining the museum? So the benefit of joining the Clark County Museum Guild is that you get insider information. So there's a monthly newsletter that goes out that has an article written by myself about what's happening in the museum, what's coming up in the museum. There's an article written by the Clark County Museum Guild president of kind of what's going on with the nonprofit organization. There's a fundraising section of that too. How can you help? And what are the new fundraising programs that are coming up? In addition to that, you get invited to their monthly luncheon, uh, which they have 
typically at the Clark County Museum Guild, but they do offer uh, a couple field trips as well to other historical areas in the in the area. You also get invited to their holiday event, which is a good time at a banquet hall, and they do a baked goods event. And then on top of that, you get free entrance into the Clark County Museum, which I think is probably one of the best benefits because you can come as much as you like and explore. We're open seven days a week. It gives you a lot of opportunity to really dive into the local history. Fantastic. Thank you. It's a great museum. It really is. Is there any other information or message you would like the community or members to know about? I just think the most important thing is that we are a community-based museum. So this is essentially the community's museum. This is a reflection of what the community is, what it has been, and can lead to kind of what we want to do in the future. You can always look back in the past and kind of figure out what you want, what direction you want to move in. And Las Vegas area, the Clark County area, is just one of those places that's constantly adapting. So though, although our history is short, when you look especially at you know areas of the East Coast and some areas that have a little longer history, I think our history is a little more unique in the fact that it happens so fast. You're talking, you know, just over 100 and almost 122, you know, 20 years of history. We had a lot happen and we're trying to encompass that all in our museum. Yeah, it is a, a relatively short time, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view you and the museum in terms of benefit and value? Reflecting on it, the way I look at it is a lot of times I look at our reviews online and some of the words that people use and are they repetitive? And a lot of people are repetitively saying, you know, how great it was to be inside the old houses. Since I've taken over administration and we've gotten some new staff members in, we've seen a lot more comments about how well they're maintained and cared for. And just if even, it's even a compliment to everyone that came before us about how it's laid out and planned and how it just really makes people feel comfortable and connects them to the community, I think are the probably the most benefits and values people get out of the museum. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Amber, we sincerely appreciate the time you've dedicated to us today. The experience has been truly enjoyable just sitting here chatting with you. Meeting you has been great, and I'm genuinely inspired by the immense support your museum provides to the community and its members. The Clark County Museum truly is one of our nation's preservation oaks. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Ms. Amber Colbert. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Welcome back. I want to share three important words with everyone in Clark County, Nevada. If you're not already a member, please visit www.clarkcountymuseumguild.com and here's the trio. Join the guild. 
And let's add three more. Become a member. Explore the Guild's Facebook page and their official website. This community appears to be a fantastic bunch of individuals deeply passionate about the history of Clark County and its preservation for the future. It's an endeavor you'd love to be a part of, with the added bonus of having a great time. Amber puts it perfectly, quote, When people think of Las Vegas and the Clark County area, they don't think about the heritage and the culture. Our culture here is building up. But for the Clark County Museum, we've been here. We're actually one of the oldest museums in the Las Vegas Valley starting in 1968. And our collection started from a resident that moved here in 1911. So our collection goes way back. And it's actually the everyday items that makes us unique that shows you how our community progressed from a small railroad town to a large metropolitan area that is constantly adapting. And this is what captured my interest in interviewing the Clark County Museum. It all began with a vision years ago, and the entire community has tirelessly worked to transform it into reality. And they continue to preserve it for generations to come. Clark County isn't just glittering Las Vegas. It's also the meadow, where families are raised and history thrives. The Clark County Museum offers sanctuary, a serene place to recharge, have fun, learn, volunteer, and engage with others about the captivating history of this remarkable region. So gather your kids or grandkids and head over to 1830 South Boulder Highway, Henderson, Nevada. Join the museum via the Guild and your family can enjoy the Clark County Museum whenever you find the time for a quiet dose of history. Administrator Amber Colbert was very gracious to meet with Preservation Oaks and provide insights into the Clark County Museum. She possesses an expert understanding of the county and the museum, making her the ideal representative. I hope when you visit, you get a chance to speak with her and to let her know how great the museum is. With the COVID pandemic behind us, a priority for the Clark County Museum is to return to pre-pandemic visitor levels. The admission rates are very reasonable, so please lend your support through visits, memberships, and donations. It's an investment well worth your time and dedication. And if you want to feel great and have a desire to contribute to Clark County's future, consider volunteering. There's much to accomplish. The museum's funding comes from the county government and donations via the Clark County Museum Guild. Stand by the Clark County Museum. Amber thoughtfully reviewed the funding and fundraising specifics of the museum, so you know that all funds contribute to worthwhile causes in every instance. The Clark County Museum, located in Henderson, Nevada, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Now you can contact the museum on their website is clarkcountynv.gov backslash museum. You can get to the guild, as I mentioned, at www.clarkcountymuseumguild.com. They're both on Facebook, 
The museum's at Clark County Museum and the guild is at Clark County Museum Guild. You can phone the museum at 702-455-7955. You can email the museum at ccparks at clarkcountynv.gov. And I mentioned their address is 1830 South Boulder Highway, Henderson, Nevada, 89002. All right, if questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the museum via the contact information. If you're a listener in the area the museum serves and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the museum. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Clark County Museum is to the community and what kinds of excellent benefits they have to offer to their members and the public. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Track Tribe, Carmen Maria and Edu Espinal, Dan Leibowitz, Heart Dream Machine, John Bartman, Yakov Goldman, Scott Holmes, and Symbolbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.